Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I am your always charming host, Joe Patrice from Above the Law. And with me is my, you know, slightly less charming co-host, Ellie Mistal. I am so incredibly pissed off today. Oh, are you? I just, I'm not even going to start with the norm. Look, today we just found out that Dianne Feinstein has been sitting on a letter for two weeks. We don't know, or maybe longer. We don't know how long about Brett Kavanaugh that involves some kind of allegation of sexual misconduct that happened between him and a woman when they were both in high school. I guess you can call them a, a girl and a boy when they were both in high school. We don't know much about the details, although I will say that you don't generally refer something to the FBI if he was pulling her goddamn pigtails, right? And despite this is now like the fifth thing that's happened with Kavanaugh that Republicans and the Federal Society refuse to take a stand on and put a stop to this nomination. Kavanaugh's answers for this kind of crap have always, have so far been completely ridiculous. He's got issues about gambling. He says, I play dice games for no money. Yeah, that's ridiculous. He says he, he's got issues about his debts. He says, I like Nationals tickets. Nobody likes the Nationals. He's got issues about whether or not he's been truthful about Alex Kaczynski. He says, I didn't hear it. I didn't see it. I won't see nothing. Oh, not a word of it. Like he's singing the goddamn who. Yeah, don't sing. Yeah, no. Uh, I mean, in this instance, we don't know the the much about this letter. It's been secret. Apparently, she's been sitting on it for a while. One would think if it was something serious it, enough to have gone to the FBI, should have been sent there earlier. Uh, maybe it's because this is nothing. I don't know. It, the real issue is obviously the votes should be suspended at this point, at least for a couple of weeks, in order to allow the FBI to do an expedited investigation. But it seems as though nobody's doing that. And that, for me, is the real problem, whether or not anything actually happened, which it may or may not have, and we'll find out in due course. But at this point, the mere allegation of it should at least, for prudence's sake, slow things down. And it's the fact that it's not slowing things down that's more troublesome to me. You know, if you, like, watch movies, right, you'll see, like, television shows or movies where they run out this plot line where, like, the guy cheats on his wife and the wife stands by him at which point the guy is now jealous and suspicious of the wife cheating. Like, it's because it's all in the guy's creepy little frickin' head. This is what's happening with the Republican Party. They destroyed the Supreme Court nomination process, right, by holding up a legitimate nomination of Merrick Garland for over a year. They destroyed that process. Having destroyed it, now they're trying to rush through Kavanaugh because they're so afraid that if they don't rush through Kavanaugh and they lose the midterms, which they freaking should, then the Democrats are going to play the same game and not give them their nominee. They're rushing through a nominee with serious credibility and integrity issues because they're afraid the Democrats are going to do what the Republicans already did with Merrick Garland. Okay. I'm going to stop screaming. Yeah, no, I think that would be for the best. Yeah, I mean, sure. Okay, like, it, the issue for me is still much more about the ignorance of process. Like, this is something that should slow down the process, and it seems as though that isn't rising to that occasion. That seems more to be a concern. That was Grind Your Gears brought to you by Rolex. Yes, it is not brought to you by Rolex in any shape or form, nor are we associated with Rolex and a 
or any of its subsidiaries. We'd like to. I don't have a watch. Yeah. Who wears watches anymore? Oh, you have a watch. Yeah. Now, like, I, I like watches. I used to wear them all the time, but then, like, my phone took over, and now I don't even think about it. You have to identify the you, or else it sounds like I was just lying. Oh, yeah, no. There, <laughs> there are other people in the room. Uh, in particular, I will jump over that and introduce our guests, because we're joined by some other podcasters today. So introduce yourselves, Andrew. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having us. I'm Andrew Eisberg. We are part of the podcast Guys Who Law. I'm with my co-host, Jesse Weber. Hey there, everybody. I realize that I need to project a lot more on our <laughs> podcast if I've learned anything in this first five minutes. Um, no, you know. Um, and, and I actually got to say something. So I wear this watch actually because of Ellie, and we've met before. And Ooh. so I'm wearing an Apple Watch right now. I was, is this going to end up at the FBI? Oh, it might actually, yeah. <laughs> I was in a Barbary competition in law school, and you were hosting it. And the prize for winning the competition was this Apple Watch. Oh, So my you're goodness. the reason why I have this. Well, no, you're the reason because you won it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm mainly the reason, but you're probably <laughs> the, the secondary reason. Yeah, I had you introduce yourself because at the last second, I blanked on the title of the podcast, whether it was Guys Who Law or law guys and i was like oh no 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 i've forgotten you know what's funny we wanted to do law boys okay. we like that one but somebody took it somebody created a law firm in the midwest called law boys first of all great name i would <laughs> totally hire them until we couldn't use it but yeah. i thought law boys would have been no legal boys it was legal boys. yeah i mean that's what happens when you're lawyers you're thinking about the trademark implications i wish we just like, <laughs> didn't care about it at all and went with it but we didn't want to get in trouble yeah so one of the things they do is this podcast which you should listen to they cover kind of the week in law sort of uh key stories that are going on in the legal sphere so that's one thing but they also work more Jesse, I think, working with a network that kind of shows court. It's, for those of us who are old, it, it's kind of like the OJ trial, uh, but more. <laughs> yeah, it's just like court TV was back in the day. Andrew and I both work for Dan Abrams, who's the chief legal affairs correspondent or anchor at ABC News. And he had this great idea because he used to work at court TV. Why not bring it back? But for digital, you know, there's a whole new generation and it'd be really good to get cameras inside the courtroom. So he created what was back in the day, Law News. And then through a partnership with A&E, it became the Law and Crime Network. I host the show every day uh, in the morning, nine to twelve. And it, we cover live trials all across the country, which is pretty unique. And we're going to, you know, hopefully talk more about what that's like. Do you do commentary with the trials or is it up to the viewer to like actually be able to follow what's going on? Oh, the commentary is the most important part. You know, you could have a trial, but if you don't bring it in with a commentary about what's actually happening and we have guests on. So we get that analysis bit by bit. What was that witness talking about? What was this about? Why is this important? You think this guy is going to be found guilty? We talk about jurors. We bring in jury consultants, attorneys, forensic people, all different kinds of, of individuals and professionals because you could just watch a trial, but really to break it down, that's what's kind of fun about it. I like to compare it to NFL Red Zone for trials. <laughs> Basically, we hop to the best of the best. So during the sidebars, during the lunch breaks, um, during any other breaks in the trials, we come back, give the audience some context. And it's really just meant for people who love the true crime space, want to learn more about our justice system. You don't need to be a lawyer to watch. And these trials are just so engaging, especially with the you know increase of people wanting to watch true crime content these days with the making of murders of the world, serial, et cetera. We kind of just fit in a good niche. I know a lot of our listeners to this podcast are people who are thinking about going into law school. You know, one of the pieces of advice is always say is that, you know, you should go to court. Court is free. And you can see what lawyers actually do and what they actually sound like. 
a lot of, you know, zero L's. They really think that litigating, you know, courtroom trial is all about these like grand speeches and incisive, you know, questioning. And I just love, I just love it when they get to watch and really see that, you know, your summation is a lot of, um, and that's why, Your Honor, um, we uh, are referring to, is this exhibit? 18b this is why we're referring to like that's the, the haltingness of it and then packed around that are some really great lines not every day is i want the truth you know that's a big surprise for people and what they have to realize is we cover the reality of these cases yes if you look at the story the headline they are really gritty cases but a large portion of it is, like you said, these exhibits. And why do I have to learn the background of DNA? You know how boring that can get? But if the prosecution doesn't put that forward, they could lose their case. So everything's a building block. And people are fascinated by how a courtroom actually works, the procedure of it, because it's not what a lot of people thought of. Yeah, I think the whole appeal of it is people like to see the onion unfolding. They like to feel like they're there at the beginning, like they're part of the jury and see every part of the step. So even though we're seeing some really boring forensic testimony, I mean, really boring, they, they still want to see it because they want to make sure they're digesting everything. And, you know, there's an unpredictability about it, too. We we covered the Larry Nassar case and we were one of the few networks to cover every one of the survivors or the victims, every statement, word for word. We didn't take tidbits. We covered each one. And we're doing it. We're covering each one. Everyone's impactful. Everyone's emotional. And I don't know if you remember seeing this or hearing about it, but there was a father of three girls that were abused by this guy. And in the middle of him speaking with the judge, he just makes a beeline for Nassar and tries to tackle him. We were like, where did this come from? And it was because we had that live camera. We have no idea. We covered another case. I forgot which one it was. A defendant looks at the jury and says to them, whispers, we caught it on audio, Find me guilty. Find me guilty. We caught that audio. And we were, I remember, I think we were the only ones that caught that. And they, the judge was like, wait a sec, what, what, what just happened? He whispered that because we caught it. So you don't know what's going to happen. That unpredictability is a big aspect of it. Did you also have a camera on the defense lawyer at that time? Oh, my gosh. No, that he, must have been a day. <laughs> I think he was talking to the judge and nobody caught it. But our camera was right on the defendant. We do that a lot. So if there's a big witness speaking or the judge is speaking, we like to look right at what the defendant is thinking, if we can get an insight. And he just turns to the jury and says that. And we, on our end, we're like, did, did he just say, find me guilty? And he did it. He was out of his mind. That's not a legal term, but yeah, <laughs> I think you got it. Wow. Yeah, no, that's. That's the thing. I mean, sometimes you can't make it on the outside, I guess. So you talk about transparency and in the courtrooms and stuff like that. We're now just a couple days ago, there was a bill introduced in the House that would radically change the way the federal courts work and move towards making everybody bring at least audio, if not video, online for people. The Supreme Court's always, them in particular, but many of the other circuit courts too, have been shielding themselves from scrutiny. What you all do... You think there's benefits, obviously, there are people who are interested in the true crime space, but for stuff like the Supreme Court and appellate litigation, do you think there's going to be some value that people will tune in and learn more about that process? Or do you think there's something kind of magical about that being a little guarded from the constant uh, second guessing? So I would say, and I would think Jesse would agree with me here, too, that there are 100% should be cameras in the Supreme Court. They're making very important decisions that affect millions of people in the country. So if any court needed that kind of transparency, I would say it's that court. And 
most of the arguments you hear against this type of thing is that the lawyers will change how they're acting or the different decisions might be made because people are acting for the camera or it's more for entertainment purposes. But you've seen with, you know, police wearing body cams, they actually act more responsibly when they feel like they're being watched by someone else. Until they turn them off. But, yes. (laughs) Thank you. But there there is actually an added level of pressure. And in reality, we're paying the salaries of most of the people in these courtrooms. Like, we should see where that money is going to and what's actually happening in the justice system. And I'll just say, if the transcripts are available for the back and forth about the questioning. Why do we not have audio at the very least? Why do we not have video? Now, I will say there's something mysterious about the Supreme Court when you don't have that in there, right? There's there's a mysterious aspect. How was the the tone of his voice? How was the tone of her voice? How What was the way that this was questioned? You could read a transcript, and I believe it or not, I went to acting school at one point. You can have a play. You can read it. But everybody reads it in totally different ways. So I think there's a value to hear how a question is asked, both by a Supreme Court justice and, you know, how it's answered by an attorney. There's a value to that that we're lacking considerably. And I think that's a problem. I think it goes back to the legal fiction that the Supreme Court justices are just brains in jars, right? Um, and that they're above the fray and they're making these, like, really deep decisions about the state of the law and not kind of— grittier, more on-the-ground, case-by-case, day-to-day political concerns. And I think that if we lived in a society where that was true, I would understand their reluctance for cameras. But since it's clearly not true, and since they clearly are making political decisions, and I don't want to go fully back into Kavanaugh, but all right, I think that cameras are a requirement at this point for the transparency and so that we can see exactly how our democracy is being stolen from us. I mean, a, l- a little, a little less, less over the top than that. But like, <laughs> to the extent we we have appellate courts, appellate courts hold to a standard that you know they trust the trial judge because the trial judge was the one who actually got to see the witness. You know, much to like the tone and stuff like that. We we already build into the system the idea that tone matters and impressions of the person's body language matter when we're deciding to give deference to the trial judge in evaluating testimony. So at the point that we already think that, like you said, that stuff does matter. We already have kind of decided that matters. So I'm also a transparency guy. Not talking too much about Kavanaugh, but do you think it would have gotten as much attention if the cameras weren't there? I mean, it was was so entertaining. And from a different perspective, too, there is a serious lack we're both millennials, there's a serious lack, I would say, for people to be interested in the way our government works and how our judicial system works. So if you put the cameras in there, how many young, more young people were talking about Kavanaugh than weren't talking about, you know, back in the day? Or, or if you put cameras in the Supreme Court, maybe they'll be interested in really big issues that are going to affect their life than just reading about it in an article. That's the way that I always felt. But can I push back a little bit? Because that that becomes then the that's part of the basis for the reluctance for cameras. If you look at the Kavanaugh hearings, something like 200 people, mainly women, I would point out, were arrested during the Kavanaugh hearings for protesting. And part of those protests, you know, I don't think 200 women got arrested thinking they were going to change the mind of John Cornyn, right? That was in part for the cameras. Um, The Supreme Court obviously has some interest in not having people upset their proceedings with kind of camera-driven protests. Now, again, from my personal view, burn the whole thing fucking down. 
But I understand that from, you know, Clarence Thomas's point of view, he doesn't want these protesters messing up his court. Well, two things. One, he probably just doesn't want them to see that he doesn't say anything throughout the whole process. <laughs> Nobody really, I don't know what he does throughout the whole process, but it could also be, hey, have cameras, have audio equipment, have reporters, but maybe don't exclude a certain amount of people that are allowed within the courtroom. I think that's very fair. And these days, more than ever, the cameras are not even as intrusive as they used to be. You can have like one camera there and everybody else can plug in. So in a courtroom, most people can't even tell that they're there. It's one little camera. Obviously for the Kavanaugh hearing, it's a lot more, but. I guess legal drama and the vision of courtroom proceedings that it, has, that it has created. Do you find that destructive in some ways? Like it, to the extent that it's convinced a generation of people that courts are this thing that they really aren't? That, you know, your work kind of is pushing holes in, but like, is it a problem the way in which we've kind of fetishized the confession on the stand kind of law? So funny you should mention that. I was just <laughs> talking about something like that. There's a guy that we're covering. His name's Stanley Liggins. This is out of Iowa. This is the third time he's being tried for the crime of killing this young nine-year-old girl. He was tried back whoa, in the whoa, whoa. Third time? Third time. I mean, isn't there like a Fifth Amendment no. thing against their mistrials? Well, he uh. was he was convicted two times, but those convictions were thrown out because of a whole number of issues with the prosecution. The problem is those cases were tried back in the 90s, maybe early 2000s. I was having a conversation about why this trial in 2018 might be different. People are a lot more savvy with what does forensic evidence have to say? What do eyewitnesses have to say? Courtroom dramas, things they've read, any which way they get the information. It is a lot different today than it was back in the day, which begs the question, will they actually acquit him for the first time? Thinking a new jury in 2018 as opposed to the 90s. So when you put these trials in and people are seeing them, they're getting a whole radically different perspective about how someone can actually win a case and what's enough to find someone guilty. Can I just jump in? Because that is literally the first, you've just made the first pro CSI effect argument that I have heard. And I am here for it. Thank you. Uh, I love it. <laughs> I feel really good about that. You can uh, quote me on that one. Just for our listeners who aren't, the CSI effect is, is what you call basically what Weber just said. The fact that people watch this stuff on TV and then have this belief of what forensic evidence is supposed to be able to accomplish. Now, prosecutors usually, who are usually who get to go on TV and talk to you about how the law is supposed to work, prosecutors hate the CSI effect because they feel like it holds them to an unreasonable standard. You know, they, they're, people are home watching Bones and they can see uh, whatever Deschanel figure it out from like, you know, two like femurs and they think that the prosecutor with a whole live person should be able to tell you, you know, what the person had for breakfast on the day he was murdered. So prosecutors generally like this, but this is a pro CSI argument because one of the things that you realize when you actually pay attention to how prosecutors work is that most of their forensic evidence is trash. And having people have a higher kind of expectation of that could actually lead to some not wrongful acquittals, but correct acquittals. That's I think we're also in a place now, too, where people are sick of reality TV shows. They're starting to realize that they're not real, they're not authentic, and they want something that's more genuine. So, like, over the last 10 years, that was a whole big to-do. But now they want to see things that are actually real. So if courtroom dramas are what brings them to learning more about the justice system, and it's entertaining in a way, but still gives them some educational component, I think that's a good thing, you know? 
just to jump back with the reality of DNA and all that stuff, you think there's, I'm not going to lie, one of the best parts is watching the opening statements and the closing arguments from the prosecution and the defense. This guy gets up there, losing case. Just this guy had the worst case. He goes, you know, uh, jury, you hear things like uh, DNA and uh, I don't want you getting all confused by what this means. When you hear DNA, don't think one thing. At the end of the day, when they presented the evidence, the DNA was all over his client. But the point is, is like you, you get this concept of like, what does it really mean? And they break it down for you in a way that you suspect and also you don't suspect. But I just love that guy because he's like, yeah, you got to work with me on something here. I don't have much. You can imagine like people doing that like 100 years ago. Jerry, you're going to hear a lot of things about blood. We don't really know where blood comes from. Is it from God? Is it from the devil? <laughs> the humors. Yeah, no, uh, that's fascinating. And it's a it's a real change in, and this goes to that CSI effect discussion a little bit, but like the OJ hearing, which is kind of from a lot of people, the first first real court TV kind of experience, right? For a lot of people- Wait, they're millennials. You, you're millennials. We're even like, we were, how old were you? You know, we got a good uh, year of OJ while we were three, probably. I was three. Yeah, oh my, gosh. My, my mom had court TV on constant. I had no idea what OJ was about. <laughs> I didn't even know- Speaking of which, I was so young. I didn't know what the little blue dress was from Clinton. I was I didn't even know what was going on there. Oh my goodness! Yikes! Um, yeah. So um, many scars. Yeah. The point is that's inappropriate evening wear. It should have been black dress. Anyway, the point is, um, I'm gonna transition back. But the, the other I would like to point out that this podcast has no women on the show today. But if there was one, Joe would be smacked. <laughs> no, I think my fashion advice was right there. Um, but the point is, um. The point there was that I was trying to get to was so the there's been a swing like that OJ hearing. There are a lot of people who suggest that that OJ verdict had a lot to do with the jury not knowing what DNA was and not being in any way willing to trust this newfangled scientific development. One that I only understood because I watched G.I. Joe and learned that was how they built Serpentor. But uh, normal people had no idea what what DNA was back then. And now everybody knows what it is. And to the point where they're super, like you said, super into the idea of it, uh, whether it's DNA is magic if they've gone all the way into CSI or just like the more reasonable, they are savvy about, we know what it is and we know how to evaluate it. Well, I think OJ is the whole reason why people are protective of cameras in the courtroom now, because that is a situation where I do think the media has screwed it up and made the trial last way longer than it would have. And the lawyers were basically acting for the camera. I mean, there were way more motions, way more problems. And that's a situation that I don't think is common. But in that scenario, I think it might have swayed what happened, made it a lot longer. Should have framed a guilty man. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to do my full OJ thing. Seeing all these trials, seeing all of these approaches, give me a sense of kind of some of the best practices for defense attorneys playing to the crowd, understanding that that's a big part of their job. Like, what are some of the best practices? Wow. So the ones where I've seen them be successful, I'm not advocating this in any way for each trial. Find another person who did it. I've seen so many cases. And if you want to Plan talk- B. Aaron Hernandez. Oh my gosh. That was one of the first cases I covered here on Law and Crime. They painted the picture that his uh, accomplice, Alexander Bradley, was the one who really did it and had an incentive to lie. Oh my gosh. If you give somebody an incentive that someone else could do it, huge thing. I've noticed from a practical point of view, PowerPoints are so helpful. 
So helpful. If you're sitting in that jury, a lot of times you don't have notes. You just have to hear what you hear, take what you see. If you have a PowerPoint presentation, it really helps break it down. But and also you have to have energy. I've seen cases where the defense has a really strong case, but it just dies with the defense attorney. Or if they're stumbling over the words or they're getting confused or they're not articulate or if they're not uh, cohesive. I saw this. There was a case. One of the best cases we've ever covered is the Tex MacGyver case. This attorney on trial, killing his wife, shot her from the back seat of a moving car. He admitted to doing it, but said that he fell asleep while holding the loaded gun. The defense put on the strongest case I think I've ever seen. Now, I'm telling you, they brought out their own expert about why the gun could, it was impossible for it to be held in an upright position. It had to be on the lap. They did an articulate explanation for what his behavior was after everything. The jury was split for a while. They didn't know which way we were going to go. They ultimately convicted him, but not of murder. They did it of a different kind of thing, felony murder. It's the whole big thing. But anyway, they were so strong that I, me, I would say half our audience was shocked when he was found guilty because of how strong they were. Here's a guy who admitted to shooting his wife and the jury was almost split. Can I just say that? I mean, first of all, that's great. I mean, that's that's fantastic. One of my favorite legal shows, since that's where you started, Joe, was always The Practice with Dylan McDermott. It was like, like this gritty Boston law firm with sexy Dylan McDermott and then like a random Harvard student who was like smart. I liked it, whatever. Their thing was plan B. Like whenever they would get like in a really tough defendant, they would always talk about having to go to plan B, which was just make up a person who maybe could have done it. Where'd you go to law school, Ellie? In Boston. Well, not in Boston, near Boston. There's a case that we're covering right now. This It's really sad. It's about this young girl that was killed. She was in the custody of her mother and her boyfriend. The boyfriend's on trial. Guess what the defense strategy is? Blame the mother. The worst thing I did was be a bad boyfriend and didn't step in. And I should have stepped in. But if you have to blame anyone, blame the mother. It's currently underway. Not sure which way it's going to go. I'd say also, too, if you're a defense attorney, 99% of the time, do not put your client on the stand. Oh, absolutely. And that, yeah. and that actually happened in a lot of our trials. It happens. The defendants go on the stand, which is super interesting to see someone testifying on their own behalf. But... More or less, I don't think it's a great strategy. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to tell you this one. We covered this guy, Adam Matos, killed an entire family. His girlfriend, her whole family, claimed self-defense on the stand. He killed four people, waited for the mother to come home, knocked her out and killed her and said, I was still like, I didn't know where my emotions were. I still thought I was under a threat. Found guilty, didn't really, I'm a big shocker there, but yeah. Defendants taking a stand. So this doesn't really have much to do with it, but it kind of brought up a memory here. There was a trial that we covered. I forgot the name of it. Then one of the juries had to, had to remove herself because she thought the defendant was too hot to convict. Adam Atos. I was Adam Atos. That's why, that's why I thought of it. So she backed out because— Too sexy. She, yeah, she was too attracted to him to, to find him guilty. I was just about to say, Ty Cobb, if you're listening, and I think you are, you have something to send to your former client now, but that just ruined it, right? Because now— <laughs> When Trump hears this, he's going to be like, well, I also am too sexy to convict. (laughs) Robert Mueller will be dazzled by my hair. Frankly, you're underestimating how good looking I would be on the stand. It'd be pretty great. Yeah, no, never put your defendant on the stand if you can avoid it. It's never a good idea. But it is one of those recurring myths still. Like whenever we hear, like, yeah, I think uh, the most recent Manafort thing, there was a conversation about not being on and people freak out on social media. They didn't even put him up. And I'm like, yeah, no, they don't have to. 
And it's probably a bad idea. This is something that happens all the time. Like, but that's one of the recurring myths I push back on on social media. Why would you put someone on the stand if they don't have to? The only time I've really seen a value in putting someone on the stand is self-defense cases because you have to understand what was going on in their mind. And we see it a lot in police shootings, which is tragic and it shouldn't be happening. It happens more and more. We've been covering so many of these cases, but it's interesting to hear how each defendant, each officer, whatever the situation is, what was going on in their mind? Why did they think there was a threat? And does it make sense? Does it really make sense? We covered this guy. He was tried two times. First one ended in mistrial. It was a video of him stopping a man in a car. I'm saying the shooting happened within a fraction of a second. Studied that video, tried to understand. And the question was, was the car moving when he fired? Was the car almost going to hit him when he fired? And the jury ultimately, I think it was two mistrials. But the point is, is understanding from their perspective, that's the only time I think there's value. Otherwise, what's Paul Manafort going to say? I don't, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the cops in those cases is the only hope because the videos are usually pretty damning. The only hope is to get the jury to be a little doubtful that, oh, well, they were thinking, uh, utilize that kind of ethos of people trust them, at least by the time you're done with decent jury selection. No, I want to do my OJ thing because I don't want to do this thing. <laughs> But you aren't going to. No. Okay. No. Yeah. It, see, that sentence seemed to be a launching point, which is why we all kind of like sat back and waited. No, I was the one who leaned back. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was uh -huh. your, I blew my load on Kavanaugh today. I'm, yeah. All I right. don't got time for John Q. Law. Fair enough. We might talk about Kavanaugh tomorrow on our podcast. Oh, there so, you go. Uh, tune in. Well, uh, we're kind of at the end of our show. Uh, thanks, guys, for joining. Uh, that's Guys Who Lost. So, and not Legal Boys, though that would have been fun. Uh, so, Guys Who Law, listen, uh, it's the Law and Crime Network. Watch that. Follow Read Above the Law. Ellie is at LENYC on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice on Twitter. Listen to other Legal Talk Network podcasts. Is that everything? What are you guys' social media hookups? Well, I'm at Jesse Cord Weber. That's on Twitter. And at Real J Weber. I did that Real J Weber right when Instagram became big. I thought it would have been funny if I pretended like there were other Jesse yeah, Webbers. Yeah, yeah. They're not. They're, it's, <laughs> it's totally useless. So I have the worst spelled last name ever. It's just Andrew Icebrook, E-I-S-B-R-O-U-C-H. And that's it. Yeah, you, well, well, from a social media perspective, you should take advantage of that like, and be like Icebrook. Ice Ice Baby or something Yeah, like or I, yeah. No, I mean, it just actually like used to be that, but I changed it to be a little more yeah. yeah. And we got at Law and Crime and at Guys Who Law. Those are ours. I think we fully plugged everything that's, we've uh, had yeah, to plug. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, no, and give reviews and stars to all of our podcasts because that helps all of us uh, move up in those ratings. All right. Thanks, and we will talk to you all next time. Write it down. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 